What we've been talking about this weekend is uh, the sufficiency of Jesus. Right, and as we've been thinking about that, what we've been trying to keep in mind is that Jesus really is enough, right? He's enough for us. And I think that this is important because so often we feel as we go through life that we are not enough, we need to be more, and we need to have more, and we need to do more. And so as we come to Christianity, we oftentimes look at Jesus as sort of a helper in that, someone who can help us get our lives together. But for Christians, right, Jesus is everything or he is nothing. And, uh, and I think that's important because our struggle as human beings is often to feel as if we are not everything, then we are nothing. And so there's that constant struggle that's going on in our life, feeling as if we're not good enough or smart enough or uh, sold out enough or driven enough, that we, haven't written our, uh, that we haven't read our Bibles enough, we don't pray enough, we don't go to church enough, we don't do enough, we're just not enough, we're totally insufficient for life in this world. And so oftentimes as we come to Christianity and we think about our lives and we think about Jesus, we often get frustrated with Christianity. Because we've been doing this thing for five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, 30 years, right? Whatever the case might be. And we still feel insufficient. We still know that we're insufficient. And so we get frustrated, not with Jesus, but we get frustrated with ourselves. And then we begin to punt Christianity because of our own insufficiency. But what Christianity is inviting us to do is not look at our own insufficiencies, but to begin to lift our eyes towards the one who is truly sufficient, and his name is Jesus. And so what we try to do this weekend is think about his sufficiency as we've thought about the sufficiency of his story. And then we went on to talk about the sufficiency of our union. And then last night we talked about the sufficiency of resting. And so what I want to do this morning for our final time together is think about the sufficiency of new life. In Jesus, right? The sufficiency of a new way, all right? So with that in mind, let's look together. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This is the word of the Lord. 
you pray with me now for the teaching of it? <coughs> Heavenly Father, uh, we are thankful once again that you are God who's not hidden, nor a God who is silent, but a God who delights to make himself known. And you've done that in your word by your spirit, and ultimately you've done that in the person and work of Jesus. And so now as we gather together and we look at your word, we pray for your spirit to show us lovely things about you in your word. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, it seems to me that one of the most uh, common questions that people have in life, particularly when they think about religion, is what must I do, right? As a pastor, one of the great questions that keeps coming to me over and over and over again is, if I'm a Christian, can I do X, right? Or uh, if I'm a Christian, uh, what do I have to do now? Or what do I have to do in order to be a Christian? And these are great questions, right? It's a great question because what this question is revealing is it is revealing that people are wanting to try to figure out what this message of Jesus has to do with their life. Now, I might be making more about the language of doing, uh, but I don't like it. Uh, And I don't like the language of doing because doing is often the primary lens through which we view Christianity. And I think that is a dangerous lens because Christianity is not primarily about doing. Christianity is primarily about loving. Right? You saw that in verse 14 when he says, Above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Christianity is primarily about loving. And I think that's important because so many of us don't want to love. We just want to do. We want to do our Christianity without ever having to think about loving God or loving our neighbor. And that's exactly why so many of uh, our high school friends, or so many of uh, y'all, so many of my friends, we just want to know the rules, right? We just want to know what we can do, like how far is too far, right? Well, whatever you're thinking, it's too far. Just go ahead and tell you that. Uh, You know, can I drink? You know, can I dance? Uh, Can I wear a bikini? Uh, Can I wear a Speedo? Uh, There's all kinds of answers to those questions, right? Um, But uh, can I drive a nice car? You know, how much money do I have to give away? Can I vote Libertarian? Can I vote for the Green Party? We just want to know, right, what all the rules are. And we love the rules because the rules are easier to think about than Jesus, right? But Christianity isn't about following the rules, Christianity is about following Jesus. And this is incredibly significant because keeping rules is in no way exclusively Christian. Right? I mean, everything has rules. Rules are everywhere. Every religion has rules. Right? All homes have rules. All communities have rules. All employers have rules. All universities have rules. What makes Christianity unique is that our lives are to be oriented around Jesus. And let's be honest, we all have non-Christian friends that are morally superior to us. I mean, we spend time with friends who, who are more generous than us, they are kinder than us, they give more money away than us. 
right? They do nicer things than us. They visit more people in the hospital than us. They may even go to prisons and visit people, right? Things that we would never do that we don't do. We have these friends, these non-Christian friends who are nicer, kinder, more generous, more devoted than we are. And when we hang out with them, we begin to have our existential crisis. Because Christians are supposed to be better than other people. That's what we think about ourselves. We're supposed to be better, or at least getting better than others. But what if Christianity isn't about being better than other people? What if Christianity is about living a life of love towards God and towards your neighbor? You see, what makes Christian obedience Christian is that we live towards Jesus. Or to put it a different way, put it in biblical theological terms, uh, what makes Christian obedience Christian is that we live in light of our union with Jesus. That we live in light of our union with Christ. And so for all practical purposes, what a life in union with Jesus means is that we live in light of what is true. Right? And therefore, what is true of you then begins to shape what you do. What is true of you in Jesus must begin to shape how you live your life in this world. And so this morning, I want us to think about this union. Right? This new life that we receive from Jesus Christ. And I want to think about it in two ways. We're going to think about it in terms of what is true. And then we'll think about it in light of what to do. All right? And so the first point will be what is true. And then the second point is going to be what you must do. All right? And I think what we'll do is we'll begin with the first point. Because point one comes before point two. All right? So we'll begin with what is true. Uh, What is true? I want you to notice that throughout this entire text, Paul is reminding us that we have been united to Jesus. And therefore, what is true of us, Paul says is now, or what is true of Jesus, Paul says is now true of us. And I want you to see the things that are true. First, he says, we're dead. You see that in verse 3. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. What he's saying is that we are now dead to sin. You no longer have to respond to it. You no longer have to live towards it. It no longer rules over your life. You are dead to sin. And you no longer have to follow its desires. And then he goes on to say, not only are you dead, but you've actually been made alive. You see that in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ. And so what Paul is saying is what we've been talking about all weekend, that you have the power of the resurrection in your life. You're no longer dead to God, but you have been made alive to God by the power of the resurrection at work within you. And so your life and my life are now bent towards the new age of Jesus, the new age of the resurrected Jesus, bringing in a new creation into the world. And you are the beginning of that new creation. You have been brought from death to life. And then connected to that is verse 4, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. And so what he's saying is that our lives are no longer our own. Right? That our new life is the life of Jesus, such that when He appears, we appear. Where He goes, we go. When He returns in glory, we will be raised up in glory. 
And so essentially what Paul is telling us is that we are destined for something greater than our sin. And because you are destined for something greater than your sin, you have now been set apart for that glory which is to come. And now you begin preparing for it in your life now. Living towards the beautiful day that will come at the glorious resurrection of humanity and the return of Jesus in all of His glory. You can think about it this way. Remember when uh, you were in high school. And when you were a senior in high school, you spent like all kinds of time applying to go to college. And uh, when you got that acceptance letter to the school that you wanted to go to, let's say Clemson, uh, you know, uh, when you get that acceptance letter from Clemson, you begin preparing for Clemson. You're not there yet. But that is where you're headed. You've received the acceptance letter. You've been welcomed into the Tiger Brotherhood, right? You're beginning. That's interesting. This is a secret society, right? I don't know if any of you, uh, if you, any of you are in it with me or not. Oh, I shouldn't have said that. I probably said that. Uh, but, um, you know, and so because you've been accepted into the Tiger Brotherhood, you have begun, right? You start sending money to the school to secure your spot, right? You start buying more orange than you should ever own, right? When you're sitting, you know, doodling, you're doodling tiger paws, you know, on the top of your paper. Uh, you start purchasing sweatshirts and Patagonia hats and chacos and sundresses and cavu bags and Patagonia fleeces and all that sort of stuff. And as you begin to prepare, you know, towards Clemson, South Carolina, you begin throwing away all that other trash that you used to own, like that Harvard sweatshirt and that Stanford sweatshirt, right? Because you are now destined for glory. You're destined for Clemson University. And so you begin to live in light of what is coming, right? And then I want you to notice in verses 9 through 10, he says, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, Right? All the action in this verse is coming not from you, but it is actually coming from God. It's these divine passives that rule over this text. And what it's saying is that God is renewing you. He's making you and He's making me more and more like Himself. My favorite image of this is to think about Play-Doh. If any of you ever played with dough, and they called it Play-Doh, you would take that little dough and you would roll it up, you know, and you'd make the little snakes... You know, and kind of stick them on your on your sister, you know, and, and all that, and then you grind it into the carpet, and your parents would beat you, and all that sort of stuff. And then, but but what was amazing about Play-Doh is that they, you know, if you bought a Play-Doh set, it would often come with a mold, you know, and you had that mold, and you would press the Play-Doh into the mold, and then when you pulled the Play-Doh out, it looked like the mold. And what Jesus is doing in our lives is He is taking us and He is pressing us through the mold of Jesus so that we become more and more like Him. We begin to reflect more and more the image of our Creator. And then I want you to notice what else is true. Verse 12 is God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. What he's saying is that you have been chosen by God. You are His. And not only are you His, but you are holy. And you are loved by Him. This is who you are as a Christian. 
You may not feel it. You may not look like it. But Paul is saying that is who you are. Therefore, you live. And I think that's incredible. Because what God is saying is that all of my affection is towards you. I've chosen you to be mine. You are holy. You are set apart. You are loved. And I think what's really important about this text, as you see the flow of it, is what Paul is telling us. He's saying, I want you to remember and rest in that which is true of you. These are the things that are true. And this is what begins to make sense of the Christian life. The Christian life is actually incredibly simple. It's not easy, but it is simple. Because the Christian life is essentially just about becoming who you are in Jesus. I mean, think about it this way. If you're a Washington and Lee fan, most of the world is a Washington and Lee fan, uh, right? Like, you're going to root for the generals, right? Like, I love Washington and Lee. Go generals, right? I mean, that's what it is. If you're, if you're driving a car, you're a driver, so drive. Pay attention, right? If you're a student... Study, right? If you're a parent, watch your dang kids. You're right? like, don't do it. do it, please. Be a parent. You know, or you can go into the uh, you know agricultural world and you think about an apple tree, right? An apple tree produces apples because it's an apple tree. It doesn't produce apples in order to become an apple tree. Oh, if I can only produce an apple. Uh, uh, no, right? It's not an apple, right? I can't do it, right? Apple trees produce apples because uh, they're apple trees. And the same is true for us as Christians, right? In Christianity, we grow and we bear fruit and we live for Jesus because we have been united to him and his life is at work in us. And that is what is true. And so because those things are true, uh, what must we do? Right, because these things are true of you. They're true of you. What do you need to do? Well, it seems like you need to begin killing sin. You see that in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And I think that this is very challenging because so often when we think about the Christian life, it's really just about sort of suppressing sin. Right, the Christian life is about taking the beach ball and trying to hold it underwater as long as possible until it throws you off it and it pops back up. And he's saying, you actually need to kill it. You need to take a knife and you stick it in the beach ball, right? You just need to let it go, let, let it die, right? Or if you think about, you think about that stray cat that's in your neighborhood that like is, like is killing, you know, I'm not gonna, we're not gonna kill a cat, okay? I promise, I promise. Right, but you think about that stray cat that runs around your neighborhood and keeps showing up, right? You hate it and it's like shedding all over your back porch. But we keep feeding it. We keep laying out a little milk for the little cat. And we keep like putting out food for it. It keeps coming back, right? You need to starve the cat, right? Like, don't feed the cat. Because if you feed the cat, it keeps coming back. And, uh, or if you think about a zoo, right? Like, we love the zoo because we take all these dangerous animals and we put them in these cages and then we pay money to go visit them. Right? And go, oh, that's a dangerous animal. I wonder if it wants to kill me. Right? And then, like, you, like, stand in front of the cage. You put your child up in front of the cage. And, like, you stick your hands in. See if the lion gets you. Right? And if, if you... 
But it, all you're doing is you're suppressing that which is dangerous, that which wants to kill you. If you, if you watch, I don't know if any of you watched the Facebook, but about a few months ago on the Facebook, there was this video that became uh, bacterial. And, uh, and as it was out there, there's this little kid at this zoo, and he was sitting up, you know, he had his face up on the, on the glass in front of the lion cage, and the lion just sort of looking at him, stroking his beard, you know, and the, and the kid's like, hey, look at me, and everything. And then as soon as the kid turns his back, the lion, boom, pounces at the child, hitting the glass, which was awesome, right? But the lion, just because it was in the cage, still wants to kill the kid, Right? <laughs> But we love to go and we love to look at that which wants to destroy us, that which is dangerous. And as Christians, we don't want to suppress our sin. We are actually called to kill it. One of the great uh, old theologians of the past, a guy named John Owen, he said it this way, Be killing sin or it will be killing you. One of the great theologians of the present, a guy named J.R. Packer, wrote this. He said, when Scripture tells Christians to mortify sin, meaning to kill sin, the meaning is not just that bad habits must be broken, but that sinful desires and urges must have the life drained out of them. What a great image. He's saying, you need to lance the boil, and you need to let it drain. That's what he's saying. You need to lance the... That's what he... That's his words. Not mine. So, uh, well, okay, they're mine. All right. Um, but, but they're playing off of hits. Now, why is Paul so serious? Why is he so serious about killing sin? Right, verse 6. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And so what Paul is saying is, hey, look, Jesus actually hates sin. He doesn't like it. And he will destroy everything that brings love and joy and peace in this world. So put it to death. Think about it. Uh, when, you, uh, when you get the news that you have cancer, you don't just take an aspirin and put a cold compress on your lymph nodes. Like, what do you do? Like, you get, like, kind of crazy with it. Start taking chemotherapy, and if that doesn't work, some more radiation, and if that doesn't work, experimental drugs, and when that doesn't work, you cut your body open and you cut out the cancer. Because if you don't, it is going to kill you. But how do you recognize the problem, right? How do you recognize uh, not just symptoms, but the real deep issues? Because we all have our list of sins, right? Uh, things like stealing and sexting, uh, drinking, cheating, lying, killing, all those sorts of things. These are bad. There's no doubt. But they're really just symptoms of these deeper problems, this deeper issue that's going on in our life. I mean, oftentimes the way we want to approach our sin is like weeding. You know, if you go out and you've got all these like dandelions popping up in your yard, and so you put on gloves because they're sticky and they're prickly. And uh, you start pulling them up, and they break off at the at the la- you know at the level of the dirt, and then three days later they're just back, right? Because you have to dig up the weeds at the root, or else they just keep coming back. And the same is true with our sin, right? Our sin uh, is not just the sins, 
But it's rooted in this deep principle of sin, which is called idolatry. All these little sins are symptoms of this, of this deeper issue. Notice verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. Right? Good list of sins. I do them all really well. What are they, it says? Appositional phrase after the comma. Which is idolatry. The problem is actually that which we worship. And so what Paul is saying is we actually need to deal with these things at the root level. Because idolatry leads to so many other issues. Verse 8, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Right? Because what begins to happen is that your idolatry isn't just going into some you know, temple or something. Your idolatry actually begins to shape all of your actions and your words and your thoughts. And so how is it that we begin to deal with our idolatry? Well, we need to think on Jesus. We need to return to Jesus. You see this in verse 2. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. Now, what does that mean? Like, don't set your thing, your mind on the things of the earth. Well, here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that this physical world in which we live is bad. It doesn't mean that we need to lift and elevate our eyes to some ephemeral world where we have paper-winged uh, angels playing harps and this sort of disembodied existence of happy thoughts. What are the things of the earth that he is referring to? Well, verse 5. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. These are the things that are earthly within us. And I think that what uh, this is pretty insightful from Paul because he's saying, look, if you want to battle against sin, if you want to live in light of what is true of you, you need to focus not so much on your sin, but on Jesus. Notice verse 1 who is above and seated at the right hand of God. And so what Paul is saying is that you're never going to kill your lust by thinking about your lust. You're never going to kill your anger by thinking about your anger. You're never going to kill your gossip by thinking about the gossip. Reading People Magazine and The Enquirer, all those sorts of things. You need to set your mind, right, not on sin and your afflictions, But you need to set your mind on Jesus, who is actually the lover of your soul. So let's think about what this might look like for a few minutes. Uh, And we'll take lying, okay, because that's the example Paul uses in verse 9. We often try to kill lying, how? By scaring it out of us, right? And so we say, look, better not lie. Because if you lie, surely you're going to get caught. And when you get caught, you're going to lose your job. You're going to live under a bridge down by the river, right? That's what we say. I mean, we try to scare everybody out of it. Or maybe you say, you know what? Hey, guys, I knew somebody who lied once, and you know what happened to them? They died, right? That's what happened. So you should stop lying. You just might go down right there. But the gospel is telling us, look, you need to ask yourself, why am I a liar? When I lie, what am I actually worshiping? Am I lying because I want other people's approval? Am I lying because I'm afraid that the truth will not be approved of by others? Right? Because usually when we lie, what we want is somebody else to love us more than we actually care about the truth. 
We actually lie because we don't trust Jesus with what is true about the world and about our lives. And that's a form of idolatry. Serving the approval of others, creating our own vision of what we think ought to be true. Trying to advance ourselves in this world rather than serving and loving Jesus who has already approved of us and already cares for you. And so as we begin to set our minds on Jesus, we then become a people who put off lying and we put him on. Right? The one who is the embodiment of goodness and truth. Right? Notice the imagery in verse 9. Do not lie to one another. Well, why not? Because you've put off the old self with its practices and you put on the new self. You put on Jesus. You're united to him. And therefore you're being renewed in the knowledge after the image of your creator. And so Paul is saying, look, if you want to begin this fight against sin, what you need to do is you need to turn from that sin and you need to look at Jesus and you need to relearn his love and his compassion. And then you begin to pursue his ways in light of his great care for you and for the world. And so what would that look like? Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord is forgiving you. So also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And so here's what it looks like. Verse 8, you put off anger. What do you do when you put it off? You go to your closet. Look for Jesus, verses 2 and 9, who is compassionate and forgiving. And you put on compassion and forgiveness. You put off, verse 8, malice and slander. Where is he? Where is he? What is he? What is he? You look to Jesus, who is humble and kind. And you put on, verse 12, kindness and humility. Essentially, what we begin to do is we begin to step away from that which is killing us and killing the world. And we turn to the one who loves us and loves our neighbor. And we step towards him. And we step towards him. And we step towards him. It's sort of like when you grow up a Clemson fan. And as you grow up a Clemson fan, like there comes a day when you have to apply to college. And you realize, I can't go there. <laughs> I'm a fan, but I don't want to be educated there. Uh, so you start applying to places like, I don't know, Wake Forest, right? And all of a sudden, uh, once you get accepted to Wake Forest, everything begins to change. And as we talked about a few minutes ago, you throw away all the Clemson, and you begin to fill up your closet with black and gold. You buy a top hat and a, wa- <laughs> you know, and a, and a waistcoat, you know, and you're a demon deacon, right? You start buying season tickets. Right? You uh, learn the fight song and all the cheers because you are no longer a Clemson Tiger. You're a demon deacon. Right? And so you begin to live into that reality. And the same is true for us in our Christianity. You put off that which is death. Not that Clemson's death, but there is a death valley. Uh, but you put off that which is death. Right? And you begin to put on this new life, which is already yours in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that that which is true of us uh, would begin to be that which we do. And we ask this in the name of Christ. 